0: All right, good morning, welcome, welcome Parkside here and virtually online, we are uh, journeying our way here through the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and so my name is Chris, one of the pastors here, welcome, I'm glad you're here, we are going to dig in here, so let me, um... it just keeps coming back, doesn't it, turn it away and it just, it just keeps doing that. All right, you know what, there we go, it'll work. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for, um, for your word. I pray, God, now as we, we dig in on this, this, this day, this morning, um, God, that you would reveal to us, uh, not just ourselves, but also Jesus, that God, as we, we look at the page of Scripture, we know that, that his, the story of the Bible is the story of Christ beginning to end. Um, and so, God, I pray that, uh, that you would be glorified, lifted up, you draw people to yourself, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are uh, nearing the end of a series here on Matthew, and our goal has been to look at Jesus in action, to try to see uh, people as Jesus sees people, and I realized that I forgot to dismiss the children. There we go. I got a wave in the back. Here we go. Uh, if there is any children, you are welcome to, uh, to leave. Sorry about that. Um zzzk. This has been one of, Okay, this is starting off rough, guys. All right, here we go. It's one of those days. So we are ending a series um, in, the, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Our goal has, has been to see Jesus in action. Our goal has been to, to see people as Jesus sees people. And we've observed uh, in him, we've seen his love and compassion and mercy. Uh, we have also seen his power, his strength, and his justice as well. And I've wanted you to, to see all of this and kind of see kind of overview of Matthew. We haven't gone verse by verse as we normally do through a book, but kind of a big overview of the book. Um, so that we're, as we're about to embark in two weeks here into the book of Acts, we're going to go verse by verse through that whole book, I've wanted you to kind of be prepared to see what happened in the book of Acts. Why did the followers of Jesus do what they did? Right? Why did they, why'd they plant churches? Why did they do the, the things that they did? And I think one of the things you'll find out is that in the, in the book of Acts, we see the followers of Jesus not just implementing what they were taught by Jesus, but what they caught from Jesus, okay? What they saw him do, and that's why we've kind of taken this journey in Matthew. And so they watched him day in and day out. And when we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and we see this in, in two weeks, we'll look at the Great Commission, we'll see when Jesus commissioned them to go make disciples, it became clear to them, uh, to the followers of Jesus, how to do it. Uh, they understood by seeing what he had done, they were to do the same thing and move on and to see people reached. And it won't be easy. They, they will be, we'll see it in Acts, they'll, they'll be afraid, they will stumble at times, uh, but they will seek to proclaim the Gospel, they will seek to serve the marginalized, they'll see to, to plant churches in very hard, unreached places is what they will do, and that's what they caught from Jesus, and that's what I want you to catch as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this is what the kingdom of God is all about, and each series we've looked at has been something about the kingdom of God, and it's a phrase has been thrown out a lot. Matthew uses it a ton. As a matter of fact, over 50 times Matthew references the kingdom of God, and sometimes you're going to be like, what is that thing? What are we talking about? And understand, many people didn't understand what Jesus was about, and they didn't understand uh, what kind of kingdom he was implementing and building. Even his own disciples, as we'll see today, didn't understand that either. Matthew's gospel, we'll, we'll talk about that in our passage today. and We really start to see in the passage what the kingdom of God is all about through both the actions of Jesus as well as the words of Jesus. And the situation we're about to study could have gone very, very differently. Okay? This story could have gone very differently. We know through, from throughout the Gospels and even John's commentary on this passage that Jesus has all authority and power. In fact, in John's Gospel, when the guards show up and Jesus says, I am to them, they all, they all fall backwards. Okay? So clearly, he had all power and authority. Instead of being arrested, he could have arrested them. Okay? Instead of being arrested, he could have taken all of their breath away instantly, but he did not. We instead see Jesus bringing into focus for us what He is all about, and subsequently what we are to be all about—the kingdom of God. So, if we're going to see people come to know Jesus, if we're going to see churches planted, if we're going to see people treat people as Jesus did, then we have to understand what this, what kind of kingdom is He building, even today. And here's what we'll find: three kind of characteristics of this kingdom. It's a kingdom of suffering a kingdom of subversion, I'll explain that one more, and a kingdom of success, all right? Number one, a kingdom of suffering. Verse 36 says, Jesus went out with them to a place called Gethsemane, all right? So in the context of the passage, Jesus breaks the, the kind of prayer huddle that has happened in this place called the upper room. It's where they, uh, he implemented the Lord's Supper or sometimes known as the communion time with the disciples, and so they were, they were up there. The meal has now ended with Peter, along with the rest of the disciples. Peter always seems to speak up first for everybody else. And Peter, along with the rest of the disciples, vowing to follow Jesus no matter what. We'll fight to the death kind of vow they give Jesus. And so they, they leave this room, and it's nighttime by now, and they journey across what, what's known as the Kidron Valley, right outside the Jerusalem walls, about 200 feet below what would be the outer court of the temple. So, very close to that area of Jerusalem. They enter a garden. It's a garden. It's called, as you see in the passage, Gethsemane, uh, which means oil press. There's a reason why it's called Gethsemane. The garden was located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and it was an olive garden, basically, full of olive trees. Apparently, according to the text, it was a closed area. It was a private area. That's why there's a gate there, which Jesus entered into with his disciples. So we pick up verse 36. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, the James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So when Jesus got to the location... He had his disciples sit in one spot, maybe under one certain olive tree here, and asked them to, to pray. And then he takes Peter and James and John, he goes a little bit farther, a little further into the garden, in some, some more olive trees, and stops there and has them then pray. And then Jesus goes a little bit far deeper into the garden to go pray by himself, okay? He needed to pray alone, spend time with the Father as he would. Now, if we were able to see the scene, if we could, could, uh, could put this into a film, we could watch it and see it in action, we would notice that Jesus possibly sliding his feet across the ground in kind of sorrow, barely able maybe to put one foot in front of the other because of some invisible weight he seems to be bearing. Other gospels even tell us that his sorrow was so deep that an angel had to appear in the middle of his prayers to serve him, to help him. Um, Realized back way back in Matthew 4 that Jesus was served by an angel after those 40 days and 40 nights and being tempted by Satan. After all that was done, an angel appeared. So the fact that an angel appears in the middle of this tells you just how deep and painful and sorrowful this is for him. The other Gospels as well tell us about how he is sweating drops of blood, which again indicates the severe, how severely stressed his body was. Now, I'm going to take apart some of these words because they're really important. There's a word here in this passage called, it says Jesus was troubled. Our English word does not do justice to the original language, which in the, our case here would be the Greek language. The original word of for troubled actually could be translated something like terrified human surprise. That's my favorite translation of that. Someone gave that one. Terrified human surprise. The idea is a reference to Shock. Have okay, you ever been in a situation, I know this is not a, a fun memory for you, but ever been in a situation where you've been received bad news and, and you, all, you can't believe the bad news you've received, you almost lose your breath, right? You're just a complete shock about the situation. That, that's what that word means. That, that word, this Greek word here is trying to, ca- trying to capture that feeling that Jesus had, terrified human surprise, shock. The book of Hebrews now, uh, we've looked at, we've gone through that book before, Gives us some commentary on some of the emotional side, even of what was happening to Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 5 7. In the context here, it says in verse 7, In the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Okay, there was a, a Jewish rabbi teaching on prayer, made the following comment. He said, There are three kinds of prayers, each loftier than the preceding one. There's prayers, he says, there's crying, and there's tears. Prayer is made quietly in silence, he said. Crying is with a raised voice, but tears is with a loud kind of scream. He says there's no door through which tears do not pass. So this is, this is how, we, how, how far Jesus went. Loud cries and tears. Now, I'm going to just hang with me for a minute. I we're doing a little bit of grammar and Greek here. I don't normally do this with you, but I want you to, these words are so important. In the, Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, the word loud cries is the word for a strong, vehement, outcry. Okay? The, the outcry word is used in the book of Acts to describe a mob, an angry mob that wanted to kill Paul. Okay? So you imagine an angry mob, screaming, yelling, torches, swords. That sound is the sound of what Jesus made in the garden. It's the idea of shrieking, shouting, screaming. Even the, the, the book of Hebrews adds an adjective to it to, to add the word severe or loud. It couldn't get any more descriptive for us, any deeper. Uh, What Jesus was happening in the garden was not quiet. It's amazing to me the disciples slept, okay? Because his prayers weren't just that you may read the language and be like, not your will, you know, not my will, but your will be done. It seems like a very calm conversation. That's not what was happening. There was, the words are a scream to your throat is raw kind of screaming. So Jesus is here in the garden. The idea of the language, he's weeping, he's shaking screaming and broken. He is wrestling with the Father, wrestling with the plan of the kingdom of God. And Jesus knew he would have to face death. He had told his disciples many times that he was going to face death, but it wasn't the death so much as the separation that he dreaded. The separation of what was about to happen between him and the Father was what hit him so deeply. B.B. Warfield, a theologian here, about 100 years ago in America said this. He said, in the presence of this mental anguish, the physical tortures of the crucifixion retire into the background. And we may well believe that our Lord, though he died on the cross, yet died not of the cross, but as we may commonly say, of a broken heart, as to say of the strain of his mental suffering. His heart is broken, dreading what is about to happen, not from the physical pain of it, but from the separation he's about to get from the Father. Why? Because he, as he um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, would become sin for us, Right? So that we might become the righteousness of God. He would take on our our sin onto Himself. Okay, back in our passage. So we get the idea of what's happening in the garden, what's going through Jesus' heart and mind, and even the sounds. Verse 40 says, He came to His disciples and He found them sleeping. After this gut wrenching prayer, Jesus returns to see His disciples, hoping most likely for some kind of human solace, some kind of support, Um, yet they're sleeping. And he did this, the text says, three different times. And the disciples didn't know what to think. You can, can you imagine what they were seeing in these moments? Right? Imagine their perspective. Jesus was acting, in their opinion, probably peculiar, maybe abnormal, not to mention the blood he was having to wipe from his brow as he spoke to them. They thought he was in the garden deeper praying, but it looked like he was just returning from a gladiator, gladiatorial games, right? I mean, he was, looked like he'd been beat up. I mean, this was, this was very unusual for them. Matter of fact, the text even seems to indicate, according to the other gospels, that this was a normal place the disciples would go with Jesus to pray. This wasn't an unusual place. This was a garden owned by somebody close to Jesus that would allow him entrance, and he would take his disciples and pray there. So this was a normal spot. They'd never seen Jesus like this before. He'd always seemed jovial, happy when returning from time spent with the Father in prayer, and now he's, he's not smiling at all. Lines appear on his face like like gutters from the streams, a tear streaming down his face, washing away the, the dirt from where he had been face down in the dirt. His heart is pounding a mile a minute, his head is slouched over, kind of like a sunflower in full bloom. He's carrying something on his back as he shuffles his feet, but nothing can can be seen. And, and realize this, that the that it, this wasn't an isolated event. This is a deep sorrow, deeper than probably they've ever seen before. But the book of Hebrews, as we read in Hebrews 5, 7 earlier, it talks about that this all happened in the days of his flesh. You're like, what does that mean? It means it wasn't just a night or a day, but during all the days of his humanity, Jesus suffered. He was wrestling throughout his humanity, praying, begging, crying out, weeping. Even the book of Isaiah gives a very familiar prophecy. Maybe you remember this, Isaiah 53. He will be known as a man of what? Sorrows. It's okay, you can say that. A man of what? Sorrows, there we go. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, familiar with grief, meaning his whole life would be one of sorrows. Not a moment, but his whole life would be a weighted down feeling of human suffering. It's a lifetime of warfare against suffering, sadness, and the sin of the human race. It was not brief. This means, guys, that Jesus didn't just enter into our human condition. We may want to add Something to that, he he maybe intensely entered the human condition. He broke into our suffering, taking on human flesh, becoming a real human being by participating in our suffering to the full. Jesus wasn't distant to our suffering. He wasn't immune to our suffering. Rather, he was intensely acquainted with human suffering. Matter of fact, uh, in the Gospel of John, when it opens up the Gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, says that he, the Word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and he dwelt among us. He was with us, right? The, the, in Christmas time, we say, name Emmanuel, which means God is what? With us, right? He's with us. He's near us. So Jesus is here in the garden and realize he's not taking the way of detachment, He's pouring his heart out. He is undone. He's also not taking circumstances into his own hands, but deferring to the will of the Father, right? He's obeying, relinquishing control over his circumstances, submitting his desires to the will of the Father. Not my will, but what your will be done, right? He's submitting to that, but he's struggling with it at the same time. You find, on the one hand, Jesus wasn't suppressing his desires to be spared, but on the other hand, he wasn't going to surrender to them either. He trusted, he obeyed God, he put himself in God's hands, and he went forward with the mission. I like how Tim Keller puts this in his commentary on Mark. He says this, Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't deny his emotions. He doesn't avoid the suffering. He loves, I love this phrase, he loves into the suffering. In the midst of his suffering, he obeys for the love of the Father and for the love of us. This is why I say the kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering. It's a reign of hardship. It's a culture of difficulty. Jesus has showed us this his whole life, hasn't he? To follow him, to see people come to know him, to get on mission, to seek to serve rather than to be served, is to sign up for suffering. Right? If you've ever tried to help somebody, you understand It's one of suffering. He has already said many times to us, hasn't he? That to follow him means to take up a what? A cross, which by its very definition, my friends, is suffering. To take up a cross was not to wear jewelry with a cross on it. If you got that, don't feel guilty today. I'm not condemning you for that. But understand, when Jesus references to carry a cross was not that. It wasn't a pendant. It was a brutal means of execution. It was suffering is what it was. I can tell you this, my friends, if someone is offering you a version of Christianity without any sort of sacrifice or suffering, a soft, easy, comfortable Jesus, you've been duped. You've been sold a bill of goods. That is not the gospel of the Bible. It's not the Christianity. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Listen, if you're going to love people, then you're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to love into suffering as Jesus does for us. There are not a lot of earthly rewards for this. There's not a lot of prizes. There's not a lot of congratulations or trophies or kudos in this deal, okay? But I promise you that it's worth it. And I promise you the great thing about this is it's not just worth it. You have a Savior who has walked every step of the way. So as you're in this kingdom of suffering, as you're seeking to go out and see people come into Christ and serve people and love people, he's there. He's been there. He's walked the road. Listen to Hebrews 2. Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We'll come back to that statement in a little bit. For because he himself has suffered when, he te- when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So the first part of this kingdom, kingdom of suffering. Number two, a kingdom of subversion. Okay, now you're going to follow me on this one. This may be a different word for you. A kingdom of subversion. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So the other gospels kind of fill in some of the details of this, right? There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all have commentary on this story, okay? And they kind of give different pieces of the, of the scene, tell different angles of it. They're all telling the same story, just different angles. And from the other gospels, we find out this is a Roman army, okay? It's a Roman army, with somewhere between 600 to 1,000 hardened soldiers, some say that this this kind of group would be something like 240 cavalry and the 760 infantry. Right? And now understand when I when I describe these Roman soldiers, I am not talking about something like a bodyguard at a Shawn Mendes concert. You know, whose job is to keep teenage girls from charging the stage. Right? That's that's not the kind of men I'm speaking of here. We're, we're talking here about like a little mix of like Spartan, mixed with gladiatorial kind of fighters, mixed in with ultimate fighters. You sprinkle all that in with the man's um, world's strongest man contest. Like throw all those guys together and you get one of these guys, okay? That's what we have here. So here they are. This group of, I mean, a massive army. Now think about this. This massive army is all after what appears to be an innocent, he's not guilty of anything, Galilean. It was kind of off the beaten path, peasant, carpenter, turned itinerant preacher. That's the kind of outward appearance that he would have. It's like, why? I mean, I get the, the torches. You know, there was no streetlights back then. It was an olive garden. It was night. The moonlight probably couldn't get through the leaves and probably it was dark. So I get the torches. But the clubs and the swords and an army of maybe a thousand men? Why? Why all that? When has Jesus ever fought back before? I mean, look who he's got with him. I mean, his disciples are not, they're not trained soldiers. Most of them are fishermen. They got like poles and hooks and corks and stuff with them, right? They don't have knives and swords. Why are they armed? And why are there so many of them? They know that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. They know that there's more to him than just being a, a peasant. So that's why they come armed to the T not knowing what's going to happen, right? They're, they're hoping for the best, they're preparing for the worst. They don't know, honestly, they don't know what to think about him because by all appearances, he seemed more of, the, of a nuisance of a fly than the threat of a lion. I mean, that's what he appeared like, but they don't know what to think about him. They, matter of fact, the Gospels tell us they have tried to arrest him before. They had sent guards to go get him, and those guards would come back and say, no one's ever spoken like him. But we we can't do this. <laughs> they, they've tried numerous different times to arrest him, to catch him, but they, they probably see him as being maybe unarrestable here. So they beefed up the troops in hopes of finally getting him. And this is why they needed Judas. Notice that, right? Judas is with them. Judas betrayed them. Uh, his betrayal actually provided them with a very unique opportunity, a way to capture him and knowing where he would be, knowing he would be off the beaten path, not in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, but out in the middle of this olive olive garden, private garden, no one else around. It's been about a three-hour gap between when they left that upper room to get to this garden. Judas somehow during that time kind of broke off off from the pack and went and spent three hours here trying to obtain enough of people, uh, figure out if they had enough men, if the leadership would cooperate. So the troops show up, the disciples now, so the troops have showed up to the garden. No doubt the disciples are now awake and fearful. <laughs> They're probably waking up to imagine a startling scene, lights and torches surrounding the park area, the sound of a, a hundreds of men's voices kind of rumbling through the olive trees, the clanging of swords against armor like peals of thunder. They're probably, you get that wake up in the middle of the night feeling, you're kind of squinting, you're kind of trying to figure out what's going on, rubbing their eyes, And they have to to take a double take because you know what they see? They see Judas leading this army. And I do imagine at that point, the other disciples probably had to hold Peter back. (laughs) It's like, let let me at him. How dare he? How could he do this, right? And so we get to verse 48. Jesus says, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once, said, greetings, rabbi, kissed him. Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. Now, what's significant about this kiss? Why doesn't he just, why doesn't, I mean, this is my thought of this. Why doesn't uh, Judas go like, hey, look, I'm going to point him out and say, hey, it's that guy right there. Like, why, why actually have to embrace him, give him kind of a kiss on the cheek kind of thing? Like, why is that happening? And in, in this culture, it was a means of affection. It was a gesture of, of intimate friendship. And Judas had heard Um, Remember, Judas had heard Jesus. He had saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw Jesus care for people, yet he betrays him. Jesus even saved his life on the Sea of Galilee because he was in that boat that was about to go under, right? He calmed the storm. Remember that story? He had saved Jesus' life probably on more than one occasion. Jesus even even calls him friend here in verse 50. Judas didn't get the kingdom of God, okay? Judas didn't understand it. But neither did the other disciples. Peter and the others didn't either. Because look what happens in verse 50. They came up, they laid hands on Jesus, they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, that would be Peter and the other gospels tell us that, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So Peter all of a sudden realizes here, you know, he's kind of this tired kind of, uh, phase of uh, going on here, haze around him. And he, he said, Peter all of a sudden realizes that they were actually going to take Jesus. And so he tries to be true to his promise because he said three hours earlier, I'll fight to the death for you. And so instead of grabbing his fishing pole, right, he grabs a sword. I know that it says sword, but the actual language of, of the, the Greek language is not a sword, but a dagger, okay? A short, maybe one foot long blade, okay? So it's a dagger is what he has. So he breaks it out. And I imagine he goes, he charges against 600 to 1,000 armed men. I don't know why I always think of this, but whenever I think of Peter in these situations, I immediately go to Scrappy Doo and uh, Scooby Doo, if you guys recall Scooby Doo. Or Gimli, remember Gimli in The Lord of the Rings, you know, t- let me at him kind of thing with his axe, and there's like a thousand of them. Totally outmanned, you're not gonna win, but he goes after him anyway. And so, the, so he takes this, this dagger, and actually the language is that he stabs the guy in the ear. I think he probably meant to stab him maybe in the heart, but he missed, and he got him right in the ear, is kind of what happens. So he stabs him in the ear. The guy's name, we find out, is named Malchus. And so imagine him. He kind of puts his hand up to his ear. No doubt he's is, is, is looking, his hand dripping with blood. And you can hear the sound now, maybe hundreds of, of steel blades ringing from the scabbards, right? They just, whoosh, out they come. And this is about to not go well, right? Verse 52 Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So Jesus. Tells Peter, put away your fishing pole, <laughs> put away your dagger, your sword, whatever it is you get. Stop fighting or trying to fight, whatever you're trying to do here. And so we find that Peter, as well as Judas and the other disciples, didn't embrace okay, the fact that the kingdom of God was, was actually more subversive than violent, that it was under the surface rather than being kind of more overt and in your face. That the kingdom of God was more after heart change leading to ultimate change than necessarily say political change. It's probable, and I do believe this actually, doesn't say this say this exactly, but I do believe this is the case. I believe Judas is going through all of this because Judas is trying to force the hand of Jesus by having him arrested. Yeah, Judas got paid. We know that. The, earlier on in Matthew, it tells us he, he received his 30 coins. But I believe this was way more than money. The other Gospels tell us that Judas had plenty of money because he used to like skim off the top of the bag, of the money bag. He was the money. He's the one who held the money for the disciples, and he would keep some for himself. So he had plenty of money. What was he doing? This wasn't about money. He may have got these troops together hoping that Jesus would fight back, right? He's going to force the hand. I got all these soldiers. He's not going to let them take his disciples. And he's going to fight. He's going to prove himself to be God. He's going to obliterate those Romans. He's going to set up the kingdom. You see? You see how he's missing the whole point of what Jesus was about? His, he wanted his version of the kingdom to be coming. So how in the world did Judas and Peter get it wrong? how did they get it wrong? Jesus did speak, now throughout the Gospels of the power the, of money, military might, political force, as a kingdom. He did speak about those as a kingdom, but they were always analogies of the kingdom of the world. Okay, you can go see that throughout the Gospels. And we find that actually God's kingdom is inverted. God's kingdom prizes what the world calls pitiful and suspect. The things at the bottom of the list of the kingdom of this world are on top of God's list, right? Kingdom's list, the kingdom's list. The world's kingdom has power and money and recognition and comfort. God's kingdom has service, sacrifice, weakness, and suffering. Let me say that again. The world's kingdom is about power, money, recognition, and comfort. God's kingdom is about service, sacrifice, weakness, and suffering. They could not be more different. Mark even adds, interesting enough, that in this commentary of the scene, he actually asks the soldiers who were there did they think that he came to lead a rebellion? The word rebellion refers to kind of a, a guerrilla movement that uses uh, violent tactics, right? The sword to overthrow the existing order of things and bring in a new order, a revolution. He asks, is that, is that what you think I'm about? <laughs> Do you think I'm here to, to bring some new revolution into place with a sword? Understand, we've seen this, guys. Let's just, just understand right now what's happening even in our own country. We've seen the rise of this What's called, been coined the phrase, Christian nationalism in our country. We've seen this happen about, and they even call it a revolution, and are corrupting the very gospel message that we proclaim. They're seeking another version of the world's kingdom, not Jesus' kingdom. They may even be using, seeking a religious kingdom, but it's not Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying to Judas, he's saying to, to us, to the guards today, you don't get me at all. You don't understand what I'm about. The kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of this world. This was the theme throughout Jesus' teaching. Matter of fact, we skipped over Matthew 13, which is where Jesus does his his teaching of his parables. But this is what they were all about. They explained the kingdom, and I want to focus in on two of them real quick. So Matthew 13, 31 through 33, will help put this into focus. When I mean a subversive kingdom, this will hopefully help explain it. He put a parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took, hidden three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So here's Jesus. He looks over at a tree in this story a relatively small tree located probably in a garden. And it's called a mustard tree, probably standing maybe about 12 feet tall. And and what Jesus tells us is that this tree started out as the the tiniest seed that any farmer in the ancient Near East would have ever used to plant and see a tree grown. It had a diameter of barely one millimeter. You will also notice, he talks about, that the the birds love to hang out on this small tree, Right? It was common to see the trees surrounded by a cloud of birds. They loved eating the little black seeds uh, and settle onto those trees and eat them. The other place he takes us is into the kitchen. He watch a lady bake some bread here. And she uses leaven in the flour just a little bit to make it rise and fill out. Without leaven, it'd be more like a cracker, okay? With a leaven, it makes it more like almost like a yeast roll, okay? Soft, warm, buttery goodness, right? Getting hungry, right? That's kind of the picture. You can smell it. Now, what's the point? Why does Jesus give this parable? The point he's he's making is that the kingdom of God is kind of like that seed and kind of like that leaven. They're small. They're seemingly insignificant. They're virtually invisible, almost imperceptible. And yet, they completely transform into something beneficial, valuable, and noticeable, so the kingdom of God, think about this, the kingdom of God seems insignificant. It looks small. The traits of the kingdom, as we just talked about, the traits of service and sacrifice and weakness and suffering are not prized. People laugh at the gospel story, but the kingdom of God transforms lives from the inside out. It turns cultures upside down, and it continues to grow exponentially. This is why I call it a kingdom of subversion. Subversive growth is growth that happens subtly, over time, it happens, uh, uh, subversive growth happens away from the watchful eye, it almost is invisible, it looks dormant, but eventually it changes into, into something very different, okay, it's like a child, a child grows kind of subversively, right, they always think they're not growing, I'm not getting any taller, you know, and, but you know the markings on the door frame actually tell a different story, you're like go stand next to the doorframe, see, you're bigger than you were last year, right, you're growing, I know you don't see it, I know you don't feel it, but you are, it's the idea, Right now, in our culture here, the fields are, are barren, right? The ground is cold and today covered with snow, and life seems completely dead. But we know it's not dead, right? It's not dead. In reality, life is happening underneath the surface. We can't see it, but life is still there. Life is pulsating through the roots. It won't be long, color will be back again. This is what God's kingdom is like. It's like a, a swell, of a wave, of swell slowly building and moving throughout history as well as through every civilization. God is at work, and he is building his kingdom one brick at a time, one day at a time, one person at a time. His kingdom work is not done by violence. It's not done by force. It's not done by politics. It's done by patience and service and gospel proclamation. That's how the kingdom is built. That's, it's com- completely counterposed to everything else our world will see. Subversive is really the way Jesus operated. Think about that. His whole life was like this, wasn't it? Think about how he began his ministry. He begin began to that. He was in the wilderness rather than in the cities. He, was into, uh, he went into synagogues to teach instead of going into the temple to teach. And then think about where he was born. Right, He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth to well off the beaten path locations. He wasn't born in Jerusalem or raised there. He tried to keep quiet about his work. You ever wondered when he would do a miracle and say, shh, don't tell anybody? Like, why not tell somebody? I mean, you just got healed. Like, why shouldn't they go tell everybody? But so often, Jesus would be like, shh, don't tell anybody I did this for you. Like, why Why not? Uh, this is how he would operate, right? The stories, his favorite story he would tell was the teaching was the parable. That's what he would use all the time. And they, he would tell these stories. And he would cause people to relax their defenses and they'd walk away kind of perplexed. or are like, a woman baking leaven, bread, okay, I don't get it, you know, and they walk away and the, the stories kind of get lodged into their imaginations and then like a time bomb later on, it just, poof, it goes off in their brain. They go, oh no, he was talking about me, <laughs> He was talking about sin. He was talking about salvation. He was talking, and those truths just kind of ring into their souls, and all of a sudden they become alive from the inside out. It's like transformation takes place without even seeing it. The kingdom of God doesn't just affect our lives and the souls of people in our community. It actually changes cultures. The parable of the mustard seed and leaven tell us that by that we are affecting change in our culture by our mere presence. And changing things without them or even sometimes even us even knowing. Growth is happening without even seeing it. We are undermining the kingdom of self and establishing the kingdom of God right under the nose of our culture by our sheer presence and obedience to Jesus on a daily basis to see, love, and serve people no one else will. This is why the followers of Jesus cannot hide from the surrounding culture. They got to be in it. They can't retreat away from it. They got to invade it. They got to be present among the culture, among the people. Admittedly, this doesn't sound uh, very glamorous, right? Because sometimes you read the Bible and you go like, well, where's that part in the Red Sea stuff? Where's that walking on water stuff, right? Where's the walls came tumbling down after they marched around the city stuff? That's the kind of stuff I want to see. Let's take this baby, right? Let's, 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 let's shake it down. And we kind of think that way, and that's not how Jesus operated, nor is that the gospel of the kingdom. Those are we call maybe more supernatural, and God does do supernatural things, sure. But normally, he works through the natural, Are you content to work in the natural? Will you trust the process, right? Will you be patient and faithful for the the long haul? Church history, this is why I love church history. If you go back and read it, you'll find out that the world was changed, has been changed, still is being changed, very subtly, very subversively, not very overtly, but very very subversively. We can see that throughout church history, it teaches us that Christians use their presence okay, in the culture not necessarily their political or military power to see the kingdom of God advance. Matter of fact, whenever they tried to use political or military power, it always went wrong and the gospel got corrupted and people were lost. Christianity transformed the way people viewed women, children, the sick, and the elderly. Prior to the emergence of Christianity, Roman culture had every... Think about this. In, in, in Roman culture, prior to the emergence of Christianity, had every child submitted to the examiners. If they were saw, seen as fit... They were allowed to live. If they were seen as weak, uh, deformed in any way, many times if they were female, they were thrown out into the fields to die because they weren't worth it. The elderly, especially widows in that that culture, were treated like dirt. They were forced to have to remarry. They could not, I mean, they had to remarry. And when they did, they would lose everything that they had, everything from inheritance from, from their previous marriage would be given over to this new person. Matter of fact, this is how it went. Uh, Cato, who's a Roman uh, writer on agriculture, gave the following advice of someone who, who was taken over a farm of someone who, who had died. The man had died. His widow was there. And here's, here's what he said. Quote, look over the livestock. Hold a sale. Sell your oil if the price is satisfactory. Sell the surplus of your wine and grain. Throw out worn-out oxen, blemished cattle, blemished sheep, Wool, hides, old wagons, old tools, old slaves, sickly slaves, and the widow. Just throw them out. That's how he treated them. But in Christianity, right, the church of Jesus Christ, women were, were honored. Jesus himself, by the way, go to Luke 8, part of his followers weren't just the 12. There was a lot more than the 12, okay? They were closest, but there was a large group of people following him. And many of them comprised of actually were women, which was shocking in that day to have a teacher being followed by women, They were the ones who stood by him at the crucifixions. They were the first witnesses of the resurrection. I mean, the followers of Jesus held all life to be honorable, be they infants or be they elderly. They supported widows. The whole chapter in the Bible, 1 Timothy 5, is devoted to this one subject. They allowed them to retain their estates. The Bible commanded that men take care and honor not only their wives, but all women as sisters and what? Mothers. It was radical for the time. Christianity was also the first faith to regard people as persons, as image bearers of God, and not instruments or tools for personal gain. And it changed. It changed the world. Rodney Stark, in his book, uh, On the Rise of Christianity, said this, "...to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family." To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. Your friends, the, the first blind asylum was founded by Christian monks. The first free dispensary of medicine was founded by Christian merchants. The first hospital was founded by a Christian lady. The Red Cross was started by Christians. The Braille script was invented by Christians to teach people how to read the Bible. Christianity was the first faith interested in the broken things of life. And that is a good way to describe the kingdom of God. Being interested in the broken things of life. That's what radically changed the world. And that's not glamorous, right? That's not gonna make the front page of the newspapers here or the, the Twitter accounts. It's not gonna trend at all doing this, but this is, what, this is what change, how change happens. This is the call. Be interested in the broken things of life. That's the kingdom of God. It takes patience. It's not gonna happen with swords and shields and cutting off ears like Peter tries to do here. We need to be present in the world, serve, meet needs, plant seeds of the gospel, and allow God to give the increase. That's how it happens. That's the kingdom, as Jesus describes it. Lastly, the kingdom of victory. Don't misunderstand the kingdom of God, okay? It's not about losing, <laughs> That's, uh, even, though, even though it is about suffering. Even though it is subversive in nature, it's not glamorous, it's not a, you don't see necessarily change happening. But look how Jesus ends his conversation with the guards and his disciples. Look at verse 53. Do you think... Did I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Verse 56 But all this is taking place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So here, Jesus rebukes Peter and no doubt the rest of the disciples who are thinking the same thing, right? Peter just happens to speak up and act for them. And Jesus says he has all authority and power in the world. If he wanted to be defended, he wouldn't use this, this ragtag group of disciples anyway. He'd have had soldiers as his bodyguards and his disciples. He, obviously, that wasn't the point. He didn't gather them to be his bodyguards. He could call, he says, 12 legions of angels. You say, how, how many is that? About 150,000 of them he could call in a moment, and they'd be, they'd be there. See, the mission of the disciples was not to be bodyguards for Jesus. The mission of the disciples was to witness the fulfillment of the gospel, to see Jesus accomplish that, and they were to be witnesses, missionaries, and servants, and they just still didn't quite get that yet. And even as Acts opens up, you're going to see they didn't quite get that yet, right? They, they get it as, as it moves on. And even though they, they all would leave Jesus, and they all would run away, even though the world would reject Jesus, and though even his own brothers, it says in John 7, wouldn't even believe in Jesus, he would stay the course. He would persevere, and Jesus, as Jesus told Peter... To put away the sword because, because, because the sword he would fall on the sword for him, right? Put away the sword. It's not gonna, you're not going to die. You're not going to kill anybody. I'm going to die for you. He said this over and over again. This is why Jesus twice in this passage at the end says, twice, isn't he? That the scriptures need to be fulfilled. The scriptures need to be fulfilled. In the other gospel accounts, Jesus talks about the scriptures being fulfilled as drinking a cup. That's what he talks about. If you look back up at verse 39 here, what did Jesus ask to pass? What did he ask? Let this what? Cup pass, right? Let the cup pass. A cup. They were, just like we talked about two weeks ago, there's two books opened up in Revelation. There are also two cups in Scripture. There's a cup of salvation, and there's the cup of wrath. And everyone will drink one or the other. You know what cup Jesus drank? You know what cup he was asking to pass, but he said, not, your, not my will, but your will be done, and decided to drink it? He drank the cup of wrath. The holy God of the universe drank the cup of wrath. He drank the cup that God is gonna make every person drink for its sins and injustices, right? For you who believe in Jesus, who have committed to him, who embraced the gospel story, my friends, Jesus drank every last drop of God's wrath for you, all of it. He didn't leave some of it for you to drink later. He drank all of it, every bit of it, every last drop. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 2.17, back to that verse, I said we get back to, he says here, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he became become a merciful and faithful high priest to make, here's the word, propitiations, propitiation for the sins of the people. That may not be a common word you know, but basically the word propitiation is the word to describe Jesus drinking that cup of wrath, drinking every last drop of it. If you reject Jesus, he, 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 if you reject him, you will drink the cup of wrath for eternity. But if you know Jesus, you get to drink the cup of salvation only because he drank the cup of wrath for you. That's why Paul would say this radical statement, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no, what? No condemnation. Zero condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because he drank all of it. <laughs> There's a no drop left in that cup, right? Knowing that on Judgment Day, your sins have has been judged already in Jesus. My friends, that gives you stability now. That gives you endurance now. That gives you hope now. That means that not only will you be able to stand before the glory of Jesus when you die and revel in it instead of cowering away, but you can stand now in the face of judgment, rejection, and betrayal of people because of that. In the kingdom of this world, okay, Even the kingdom of the religious world laughs, mocks, tries to intimidate you to take up the sword. You can stay the course and you can follow Jesus faithfully because of what he's done for you. You're not trying to prove something. Those of you are so crippled by what people think of you, what people might say about you, what people may have even have done to you and it makes you freeze in your tracks. It makes you shrink back, maybe into that little Christian bubble, try to find a safe place to be where you don't interact with people. You, want to take, you don't take any risks, and you don't befriend any of those who don't know Christ or pour out your heart in deeds of mercy. You just try to stay away and try to stay safe. But this verdict of no condemnation from God and Christ helps you shake off the opinions of others. It helps you step out in boldness and faith and take those risks. It helps strengthen you to be patient. It helps you suffer well. It helps you to be present to the lost and suffering around you. It radically changes you. So we go to communion. And I want you to consider these truths. I want you to consider, we we'll go back to the picture for a minute, back to the scene. I want you to imagine the guards, they arrest Jesus, right? They lead him back from the garden of Gethsemane there take him back up to to Jerusalem, back up to the the main walls. They would lead him back through that Kidron Valley he had passed through before. Understand what's happening at this exact same time. It's Passover. It's at hand. And history tells us there were probably about 250,000 or so lambs slain in Jerusalem during Passover. And since Passover was occurring the next day, the lines of people at the temple who were getting their lambs slain was immense. It was such a bloody mess that they actually had to cut a channel from the altar that drained, drained away the blood down through the side of the hill all the way down to the valley. No doubt, Jesus, being led to the temple area, would not only observe the flowing of the blood down the side of the hill, but most likely have to walk through it to get back. The inevitable was about to happen. His blood was about to be spilled and run down the hill of Calvary. And as John the Baptist would say, he was the Lamb of God, right, slain, right, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's what was about to happen. It's what he was going to do for you and me. So what kingdom are you serving? Are you serving your own personal kingdom? Are you serving the the world's kingdom? Are you serving the maybe religion's kingdom? Or are you serving the kingdom of God through sacrifice, service, suffering, and proclamation of the value of Jesus? My friends, it is easy to get caught up into another kingdom. It's easy to get caught up into another culture, another worldview, and just just get submerged into that. But today, Jesus is calling you out of that stream, okay? Swim in a different stream here. Live for a different kingdom than for yourself or for the world. Live for the kingdom of Jesus. As we go to communion, there's little cups there in, in, the, in the pews in front of you, or the chairs in front of you. You do this bread and juice. It's a picture. It's a, it's a help us to remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. Let's take time and quiet here to reflect. If you know Christ, you're welcome to take. If not, please don't. We would love to answer any of your questions you may have. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is to get caught up into the kingdom of self. How easy it is to be caught up into the kingdom of this world, even this kingdom of a religious world who throws your name into the mix, but it has nothing to do with you. I pray, God, you would open our eyes to see what we are to be about, what this kingdom is all about, why we breathe today, why it is that we who have come to know you we're not immediately just taken up to be with you forever in heaven. Why are we still here? We're here, God, because your kingdom is being built. We're here because there's suffering and brokenness around us. We're here because there's people who are lost all around us. And we have a mission. We have something to live for that's so much greater than ourselves, so much greater than our agendas or the world's agendas. God, it's yours. I pray, God, you would get us on track and help us to follow you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.